Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the fabulous Hazel Smith, whose list of accomplishments is so long and varied that I could take up the whole of the show just talking about them. <laughs> but I'll keep it simple and uh, just say that this fabulous poet, performer, emeritus professor and new media artist is the author of a very wide number of books, including four volumes of poetry, three CDs of performance work, numerous multimedia Media works through Australisis, a sound and intermedia arts group she's a member of, a uh, former professional violinist, co-editor with Roger Dean of Sounds Right, a journal of new media writing and sound, uh, and is based at Western Sydney University, um, where Hazel is currently emeritus professor in the Writing and Society Research Centre. And uh, we'll stop there. That's a very truncated version. Um, but Hazel was last on the show talking about her book, Word Migrants, um, and today is here to focus on her latest ooh, her latest book, <laughs> Ecliptical, which was published this year by Spineless Wonders. So Hazel, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Magdalena. That's a very generous introduction and I look very forward very much to our chat. Yeah, probably not generous enough given your accomplishments. But we, we've got to stop somewhere and I want to hear some, some poems. So um, can I ask you to just open the show? I'm going to throw us right into it uh, with a poem. If yes. you want, I'm, I'm happy for you to choose, but if you want me to choose, you could start with the first one, which is collection. Yes, yes, I'll start with that. It's a good, good one to start with, I think. Okay. Hey, the collection. She wondered if the poems needed to add up, as if she were accounting an unruly sum, sends figures spinning. Pondered whether it mattered what positions they took at the volumes table. Or if the ideal read might be a place names free Dionysian shuffling. Mused over whether a collection should be one enfolding wail like a didgeridoo player's circular breathing, a long song in which every distant return or variation is embedded in the sly beginning, or a series of jagged gasps. She didn't want to pretend that poems conceived with different partners urgently needed to cohabit, but she knew they all originated in her, however creolized their prehistories. As with anything, there were claustrophobic expectations. Even those determined to flout conventions had their eye firmly on them. An overarching theme with moat-like fencing was fashionable, but she wanted to spit out the volume in little bits embrace amputations rather than the whole body, limbs clasping and releasing each other in sweaty improvised alliances, far from their poetic birthrights, swinging from titles that are not blood relations, cannot account for them. Thank you. That's a great way to, to begin and uh, to begin the book as well as to begin the show, I think. Um, and we're straight into meta poetry uh, and really a kind of um, poetic forward. So just talk to me a little bit about why you decided to begin with a, a kind of poetic introduction. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but but just talk to me about that process of uh, of, you know, starting that way and what it means to, you know, effectively draw in and tag the reader in such a way. Well, when I um, set up a volume, when I put a volume together, I love to have some poem or poems in it that kind of refer to that volume in some way. Um, you'll find poems like that in most of my volumes. Mm -hmm. And 
I thought that I haven't sort of read many poems that talk about actually putting a collection together. It's such an interesting um, thing to do. You're thinking about the order, you're thinking about what comes at the beginning, what comes at the end, which poems resonate with each other and so on. Um, and I also thought that um, it was very interesting that there's a bit of a fashion, I think, at the moment for volumes that have that constellate where all the poems constellate around a particular theme um and have a, a central focus and that's great it makes the volume very focused but i still think there is room <clears throat> for volumes where there's a lot of variety and all the poems were written at different times um and in different places and as i say in the um as I say in the poem, they all they all come from me. They all originate in me. So somehow or other, they can all belong together. And um, a kind of themes emerge from putting them together. So I was interested in that whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, as I say, when you when you start with that kind of um, meta poem like that and break that fourth wall right from the get go, it's almost like an invitation for the reader to not only to see that process, which is really fascinating, um, you know, from the inside, but also to kind of, I guess, to, to note that, you know, they are part of what is informing and charging this work. So yes, each, re I, I, each reading is almost like that process in its way. Yes, you're, you're thinking about readings when you're putting the volume together, I think. And I'm very interested in that kind of poet audience interaction. I did quite a lot of performing mm. and I'm interested in, you know, how people react to the poems. It's a very interesting thing, of course, when you're a writer because you don't see most of the reactions. At least in a performance, you can get some sort of idea and people might come up to you after the performance. But most, mostly the people who most appreciate your work, you'll probably never meet um, when you're a writer. It's a very uh, strange situation, I think. But yes, I'm very interested in those kind of interactions. Yes. And I think a lot of the pieces in the book are quite performative in that sense as well. They, you know, yes. they not only invite reader interaction in that way, but they, you know, they, they do things visually, you know, they sing and they dance and they, you know, they, uh, there's all sorts of uh, intellectual, but visual and sonic and referential elements as well that are, um, you know, and, and this is maybe, uh, uh, I guess, um, it's something that all your work seems to to take on this kind of multimedia, multi-sensory elements that, that charge yes. the work. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. Of course, I was a professional musician mm -hmm. before I became a writer. So I do have a big kind of foot in the, the music world and I work a lot with musicians in Australisis. So um, that's a very kind of big thing, but I'm also very interested in all the arts. I do spend, I'm not one of these people actually who spends you know, all their time reading. I do a lot of, uh, I'm very, very interested in cinema, for instance. Mm -hmm. I'm very, and I go around galleries a lot. And so I'm very interested in all the arts and that really feeds into my work a lot. So, yes. Yeah. And yeah. I love that kind of interplay, particularly between sound and sense. And mm. uh, yeah, and one off against the other. Yeah, and that really comes through the work. Um, so talk to me a little bit. This is a completely different publisher and maybe a, quite a different process, uh, at least from what I understand, working with Spineless Wonders versus, say, working with uh, Giramondo. Um, how did you? How did that work for you? Did you, did you have much um, direct engagement in the kind of overall structuring and, you know, even the publication process of the book? 
Yes, I mean, Bronwyn, man, who's who's really wonderful. She's the director of uh, Spineless Wonders. Um, she's she's not in a kind of interventionist kind of editor. So she <clears throat> left a lot to me. But obviously, I consulted other people. I you know had my own peers that I talked to about the volume. And a lot to do with the actual appearance of the volume was discussed with, um, the, with the typesetter. So... Um, so the, yeah, there was there was engagement by them, but there it wasn't any interference, and it, it, the relationship really suited me very very well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well. Um, mm. So another thing, in addition to all those multimedia elements, and you know, there's so much that happens. This is really, I would say, this is probably one of the most dynamic um, books that I've read. You know, as oh, a as a right. reader, you. you know, really feeling yeah. um, like there's a lot of fun things that I can participate in. Um, and one of the things that the book has all through it, like a real rich gold vein, is is humor. Um, it's all the way through it. We heard it in the first piece um, and uh, lots of winks, lots of nods and lots of, lots of fun. Um, yeah. and, and really multiple voices as well that come through. Yes, yes. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in humour. I don't want to use humour all the time, uh, but I'm very interested in the role it can play. And I always say that what I like about humour is that it's deadly serious and that you can make a very <clears throat> serious point with humour, which might be a bit heavy-handed uh, made any other way. I did write a book on the poet Frank O'Hara, and he is one of the great poets from the point of view of being able to handle humour and introduce humour and um, be a very serious poet at the same time. And I suppose that's my kind of uh, goal. So I love that. Um, and the multiple voices, yes, I'm terribly keen on that. Th that, again, comes from the more performance aspect, I suppose. Um, some of these, one or two of the po uh, poems, like The Lips Are Different, uh, which is about racial discrimination, um, it, that actually is a performance piece, which I have adapted to the page. Mm. And that's another thing that I'm very interested in, this kind of negotiation between different modes. So uh, maybe a piece started as a performance piece, but then you can adapt it in various ways for the page and in doing that you might use say fonts to distinguish different voices and that kind of thing so yes I'm very very those are two things that you've brought out that I'm very very interested in and yes. very committed to. So yeah. what I'll do as well is um, there's lots of fun multimedia of your work online and I will link to some of that um, particularly as it relates to ecliptical in the show notes. Um, oh right. Yeah. So um, I'll do that. And we'll get back to Frank O'Hara in a moment as yes. well. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, suddenly the, the line, Lana Turner has collapsed, is, is in my head. Uh, from your... we'll, yes, right. Yeah. And I'm thinking of his humor as well. And, and I can see some parallels, just almost like the subtlety of the humor. I mean, it's, it's not that it's subtle. It's, it's clearly funny. But it's also, um, it's not forced. You know, it, fe it feels very natural in terms of the work itself, which I think is something oh, you, you have in common with him. But we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, James Comey and Donald Trump, <laughs> a revenge <laughs> drama, uh, which, you yeah. know, when I was reading it, I, I, I had the question immediately popped in, into my mind that, you know, does engaging so directly with current affairs, is that a risk that, you know, at some point the poem might date? But it doesn't seem to be the case, even from a current affairs <laughs> point of view. I mean, I suppose there's always a risk with everything that it dates. Everything does date, but that doesn't necessarily 
make it uninteresting. So, you know, if you, uh, a lot of great poems um, that have been written, you know, they have notes about the particular circumstances in which they were written and people can refer to those notes, people can look things up on the internet. So I don't think it's too much of a risk, but obviously um, I wouldn't want to necessarily write a whole book like that, but it's nice to introduce uh, one poem, um, one or two poems which are very topical like that. Or as you say, you know, Trump's getting, probably getting less topical now. We hope, we hope he's getting less topical. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and that is a, you know, that is one that really is is quite funny as well and is a drama, <laughs> a revenge drama. So that yeah. it really, again, pulls in that, that lovely um, multi-voiced element. Um, could I get you to read that one? Yes. Yes. James Comey and Donald Trump, a revenge drama. Possibly, I couldn't find a door, a door that said no action. To be a president, unfit morally. Bad, rather than catastrophic. Bad, rather than catastrophic. Bad, rather than catastrophic. It's a reasonable question. It's a great question, but most importantly, in a way I care about the answer. In another way, it doesn't matter at all to be or not to be morally unfit. Did we have some role in this? The election, some impact on every door bled. The way they were made, they were good decisions. A hunger for affirmation, I've never seen it before, in a bad rather than catastrophic, bad rather than catastrophic. A door that said no, a door that said yes, a door that said no, a door that said yes, no action, no yes, no yes, yes, no action in an adult, some impact on. Possibly, pos, if pos, please, Lots of not knowing, knows for not knowing. I don't know, I don't know, I care, don't care, care, don't care, care, don't care. Slightly orange, with bright white half moons. I don't know, care, don't care. Possibly knowing can't. Words I never thought I'd think. Words I never thought I'd utter. It's a reasonable question, it's a great, president from never never land words that belong only in the gutter there is no precedence the question the questionability the quest the quotidian the quixotic the queer bad rather than catastrophic sad rather than catastrophic mad rather than catastrophic possibly pos possibly sib sop is softly possibly do i look like a guy who needs hookers possibly it's a great question. Uh, I, you just read that so perfectly too. And, uh, you know, I can imagine how hard it must be to get the right timber for that, but you, you really do, um, you pull it off. <laughs> and it is a performance piece, of course, uh, and one yes. in which all the sonic elements are providing their own kinds of meanings about, you know, what we can and can't say, what we try to say, what is being said. Um, I, I just, you know, I love that play of, of sound and sense. Oh, that's great. It's, um, you know, I got it from the um, James Kermy interviews because, you know, there were a lot of interviews when he brought out his book, A Higher Loyalty. And um, he was talking a lot about um, why he had decided to make that announcement about that he was reinvestigating Hillary Clinton just before the election. And he kept saying possibly or 
I don't know. Or, it's a great question, sort of putting it back onto the interviewer to some degree. And he also said, which I thought was very interesting, that um, he couldn't, there was no good decision that he could make. It was a choice between a, a bad decision and a catastrophic decision. So I took all those little elements and, um, you know, played with them sonically. But it's great that you feel that it actually comes out as something slightly more generalised about what we can say and what we can't say. I'm, I'm very yeah. pleased that it has that Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that, go, that, that maybe goes, you know, answers my own question, really, because it goes beyond <laughs> the notion of, of current affairs into this idea of, uh, you know, of the political process and, you know, sound bites and, and public speech. Yes. And engages yes. with that, you know, and I, I mentioned in my review, Jeff Blanc, but, you know, I was thinking of the um, sound poem that he has, what the president can, you know, will say and do. Yes, yes, absolutely. I love that poem, actually. I've heard mm. him um, perform. Uh, I mean, he is just an amazing performer. So he he's more sonically, probably more on the continuum. You know, there's a kind of continuum between yes. semantics and sonic. And he's probably further towards the sonic end. Um, so sometimes he would perform things that are, are really just sound. Yes. Um, well, but, he's choking. Yeah. He's choking at the end, right? At his performance. Yes. yes. Um, no, but, but that's a wonderful part. Yes. Thanks for reminding me about that. Yes. But yeah. I do get that sense. This this idea of this tension between you know uh, yes. what we can and we cannot say, and yeah. uh, and how we are being you know as again brought in as readers into this kind of dialogue um, as a way of uh, of really yeah. engaging with these these words that appear to have meaning. Yes. Yeah, great. Yes, that's great. All right. So let's pivot into the title. Um, a, a lot in the book and, uh, you know, an, uh, maybe an interesting theme that runs through the book that the title uh, twigs is this notion of circularity and, and you know, things moving back on themselves, eclipsing and, you know, and, uh, and coming back. So can you talk yes. to me a little bit about that, about the whole notion of eclipses and ecliptical? Yes. Well, I, I'm, I, I started, a, this sort of search for a title started with the poem Partial Eclipse. Um, and I thought of calling the volume Partial Eclipse. And then I wasn't quite sure about that because, you know, there's a bit of a kind of romantic thing about talking about the moon or whatever. I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to, uh, buy into that um, and then and, and I'm interested in, in in the whole idea of eclipses because I'm interested in all the things in a situation that you don't really understand when you're in a situation and you feel that there's a whole kind of undertow but you don't really know exactly what's going on and we're normally in that kind of situation people don't necessarily tell us the whole truth about things um, so we're often sort of guessing as to what is really uh, going on and that's in a way, a very rich experience, which is something I try and bring out in my poem, Partial Eclipse. And then uh, there was a the whole idea of ellipsis, um, you know, very um, an elliptical, very condensed um, expression of I ideas, um, which, you know, play, plays with eclipse. Um, and ellipsis, which is, as you say, circular, but not quite a circle. So I was playing on all those things, it has been pointed out to me since, um, which is quite important, I think, it, that Ern Malley's uh, volume uh, is actually his collected poems, if you call him he, Ern Malley, um, is actually called The Darkening Ecliptic. 
And yeah. so um, I didn't wasn't thinking about that at all. I mean, I don't know if I even ever really registered that the collective poems was called the Darkening Ecliptic, but um, I wasn't thinking about that. But when I looked back at the volume, I thought, well, this is quite amazing because the first section, for instance, has quite a lot about authenticity and there's a poem called Faking It in it, and which is really about authorship and those issues. And so that resonance of uh, Mali's uh, The Darkening Ecliptic seemed to fit perfect with the volume, but wasn't what I originally intended. That's what we hope for, isn't it? That meanings will come out that we didn't uh, originally think of. Yes. Well, maybe it's in, you know, in the zeitgeist. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a lot of dots that are connected when you sit down to write a poem, aren't there? Um, you, you know, I, I, yes. I mean, there, there's a lot in the book. I, I want you to read Partial Eclipse too. So I don't, I won't move too far along from that, but you know, there are a lot of, um, a lot of referential poems in this work and uh you know they're either ekphrastic or inspired by artwork of different kinds um yeah. and again we'll come back to that a, a little bit but you know i feel like um when i'm reading the work and, and maybe this is part of again writing good poetry but you know there are a lot of resonances um from the, the kind of poetic biosphere if you like that come into the work and they, right. char they charge it, they kind of bolster it and yeah. give it depth. Right. Yes, well, there again, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's that's really interesting insight. Thank you. Yes. Do you want me to read partial eclipse then? Marge? If you would, yeah, that would be great. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'll just take a sip of water. <clears throat> partial eclipse. On the night of the partial eclipse, you squinted at the moon, or wishing the sky seemed less cloudy. Afterwards, your young friends, Amy and Phil, sat around a table with Michael and you to drink a glass of wine. In the middle of a context you could not later recall, Phil said, as if it was self-explanatory, Amy doesn't get jealous. Amy did not respond and such a remark did not align with anything you knew about her. You are curious and wondered what he meant. Was he talking about sex? Was he hinting at some hidden aspect of their relationship? <clears throat> or was he reflecting more broadly? Marked by an unasked question, an ellipsis that would expand, the opportunity to inquire was lost. You could not say weeks afterwards. I remember you said that Amy does not get jealous, and I have been wondering what you meant by that. I would like to know because the idea that someone is immune from sexual jealousy is unusual. You had to leave the remark in place, stretching and flexing. You will learn to value it because it cannot be further decoded. You will be grateful for all the thoughts it has provoked in you, all the moments of wonder it has provided. Almost, almost, you hope its orbit will not be stilled. Its aura will continue to burn brightly. Hmm. Oh, so, so much in that poem, it, you know, mm. on the one hand, and again, I, uh, this is, this is something you do quite well, and, uh, and you do it often in the book, which is to take a, I guess, a domestic, fairly trivial, seemingly trivial, maybe almost uh, mundane situation and, and, and expand it and put that ellipsis in. Um, and turn it into right, yes. a whole a whole range of philosophical quandaries uh, that are much much bigger and much broader 
um, this is a kind of expansiveness to the work that is again quite subtle. But uh, yeah, that that one particularly does it. Um, yes. Did, did yes. the book pivot around that poem? I mean, I always think about title poems and how they work, and that's not quite a title poem, but almost. Yeah, I think it was an important poem. I really like this one. <clears throat> Although one of my readers for the volume didn't like this one so much for various reasons, but I, I really like um, this one. And I think it was quite uh, an important one. Um, it's difficult to say what's a pivotal poem and what isn't, because there are always quite a few that you feel you really want to include, but it does, yeah, I think I think it probably became more and more important as the volume kind of accumulated yeah yeah that's interesting and do you find you know and and this is goes goes right back to the first poem that you read but do you find that the process of pulling a collection together actually changes each of the poems as they become kind of informed by the way in which you organize them and the proximity to others and where you place them in the volume like it's it's each one almost becomes different as you turn them into a part of a whole rather than have them be individual yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought that I think, mm. yes, I think there is an element of that. I mean, you find, I suppose, which poems are quite similar in theme or form or whatever. So you you become aware of recurrences in a way that you might not if you, um, yeah, and certainly some do resonate together. I mean, it's frustrating in a way because I think a lot of people have a sort of hunt and peck um, attitude towards reading poetry books and they just sort of pick out poems. And I keep saying to people, you'll get much more out of it if you read the whole thing through in order, because the order has been quite carefully thought about, but you can't really, there's no way that you can dictate that, so. That's um, true, you, you can't control the reader. <laughs> realize that. They just sort of pick out bits. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. All right, so I wanna get, we're, we don't have too much time left, but I wanna, I wanna get to John O'Hara. That's right, sorry, Frank O'Hara. And, uh, um, you know, I, I feel like he's the spirit guide of this book. <laughs> and yet oh, he's, right. he's barely mentioned. Uh, he's only there yeah. really in the um, in the notes. You you wouldn't yes. even necessarily know how uh, how he is a part of that that process. Um, so we go to that the, the poem, and this is probably the last one I'll get you to read, which is uh, yes. Ash and Berries, communing with John Ashbery. Um, yeah. And uh, I won't uh, talk about how jealous I am that you got to interview him. <laughs> but uh, I do, right. I, I feel, uh, and I might have said this in my review, and I might not have, I can't recall, but I, I feel like the the John Ashbery poem, oh, sorry, the, uh, the Frank O'Hara poem, Why I Am Not a Painter, is almost a, it almost plays off this poem because um, I feel like O'Hara functions as your oranges and sardines. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, I mean, that was a wonderful insight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There again, I hadn't thought about that, but yes. Well, I'll read it and then we can talk about Yes, sounds that. great. Let's yes. <laughs> okay. Ash and Berries, communing with John Ashbury. Your poem today seemed curiously unkempt as if it needs a shave and a change of clothing. Reading you as a spot of red wine spreading on a white rug, then quickly disappearing. I have never been thrown off a horse, but I can imagine what it would be like. You have to pick yourself up and start riding again before you find that the horse and you can't cooperate. Roots puff up and burst. The unconscious pays its shaky dews. All the time I'm hovering above the boat, as the water washes over. 
there always seem to be three ways to think about everything. Three ways that you can pay a debt or start your life again. Memories fall like ash. Red berries spot the knitted snowflakes. I left my tears in a plastic bag, but I don't remember where I put it. When we spoke, even the simplest words get melting. But you have dismounted from your surrogate throne and I have made you mine. We have a little poetic shareware in common, despite the steam of typewriters. An attention span is nothing but a placeholder. The margins lick up the sublime. Don't move, rough tides will pull you out, then push you back to me. So I, firstly, this is a hugely funny poem. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> your humor is, is in full, full pelt here. <laughs> right. uh, but I, you know, I feel like there even more than I'm get, I get some, um, but there are so many little Easter eggs in this one. It, <laughs> right. it yes. is, is that right? You really uh, engaging with the man and his work in a way that almost has a, a fun tension. In a way, there's a, an Ashburyan cadence to it. But also, at the same time, it's so opposite to his way of approaching you know, as far as I understand it, I'm, I haven't done an exhaustive study of Ashbery, but, you know, he's kind of slightly cold way of approaching the work because this is warm and it's engaged with the man in a way that his work almost seems to resist. So there's a really fun little interesting tension here. I thought um, what you wrote about this uh, was really interesting, that there was a kind of triad, uh, mm -hmm. Ashbery, O'Hara and... and uh, me in there, um, which, uh, you know, I thought that's that was very <laughs> I thought of it like that. And um, I think so. When I interviewed him, I interviewed both him and Kenneth Coke. And mm. Kenneth Coke was incredibly ebullient and he was very, very forthcoming. And he was absolutely fantastic, actually. Um, and Ashbury was much more sort of taciturn, more difficult to get to grips with. Um, and I think he really would have preferred to talk about his own poetry rather than talking about O'Hara. So um, I didn't, there was a slight feeling with me that, you know, I hadn't quite got the moment there, hadn't quite got the best of him. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, the difficulty of reading um, an Ashbury poem, but I think the, the thing that you're getting at to some degree is that in Ashbury, you're, it's sort of um, head-on abstraction all the time it's it's you know you you get into it it's very very abstract you think you're going down one route and then you suddenly find that you're careering off somewhere else mm. and I like it I, I probably wouldn't personally call it cold but it's um I, I don't find it cold but it's it's quite abstract whereas O'Hara tends to go more from kind of being very representational into being very abstract and then back again he's playing all the time with the tension between those two things and um I think that that particular way of writing really attracts me that you that that O'Hara does. Um, and as you say, it's quite sort of personal in some ways. So it's very interesting to hear your reading of it. I hadn't quite thought of it. I hadn't even necessarily thought of it as being that funny. So it's very interesting to get your um, take take on that. It, it almost, that it, it, yeah, it it's almost bit, like yeah. you're gen gently teasing. Ashbury yes. with with yes. the, pun, the puns for example on his name that you play with yes. and, you know yes. and, and some puns yes. on his work as well 
but yes. in, in yes. the O'Hara cadence, you know, because of this, this sort of progressiveness, um, the kind of walking style. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you see that in it. That's absolutely perfect reading as far as I'm concerned. I'm very, I'm very flattered by that reading. And yeah, I think there's probably quite a bit in it that O'Hara is sort of standing there, um, standing over the poem. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. In a in a way that really is quite, you know, given that they're both, they're they're both of their positions in you know poetry as a whole. That, that's capital P poetry as a whole. You know, it yeah. is is quite fun for you to play that triad. It's uh, in and of itself yeah. is kind of um, irreverent and funny. Yeah, well, I, I certainly, I, and I'm a fan of both. I mean, I'm more of a fan of O'Hara, but I am an Ashbury fan as well. So. Yeah. Yes, I hope it comes across. <laughs> so so we are out of time yeah. now, um, yeah. and, and that is all we have time for today. But uh, any last words, Hazel? Do you want to just throw one <laughs> one thing out <laughs> before we, we end? Uh, I just want to say thanks very much, uh, Magdalena. I mean, a, a poem is as good as the person who reads it, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's great to have a, a really um, very responsive reader, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about the poems. And oh, it's well, illuminated. A number of things for me about them. So oh well, there's, there's so much more I could have talked about. Uh, <laughs> you know, time. I'd love to talk about time. You have a whole section on it, and the time rip section and memory, um, and and computer assisted palms. And there's a whole range of things. But you know, we'll just have to do this again. <laughs> yes, that's great. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.